you know, each testimony involves the same Lord, same grace, and the same faith. And But some of us have to go through um, different circumstances to come to that realization. In my case, my family often said that I was an accident, that they had protected me enough that um, somehow the gospel sneaked in and made it to me, but it shouldn't have happened. And uh, as Steve mentioned, it happened in 1981 when I was at college. And the part of the reason was because the family background that we had, my great-grandfather actually was from Iran, and he was a Muslim. He rejected that, moved to east of Iran to a region now what we call Afghanistan. That's where my grandfather was born, and he was raised in Sufism and uh, bhakti movement of Hinduism, kind of a mixture of everything. He didn't like that, he rejected all that, and he moved south of Afghanistan to what we now call Pakistan, and that's where my father was born. And in 1947, at the time of partition, they all moved to India, where my father finally got married and I was born in India. And I, my father was raised as a Sikh and then I became a Christian. So just in four generations, we went from Iran to Afghanistan to Pakistan to India, but also we went from Islam to Hinduism, to Sikhism, and then to Christianity. You thought that was a big change? Well, <clears throat> my father only spoke Urdu, my mom spoke Punjabi, my grandfather spoke Dari, and my grandmother spoke Pashto. And we all had to learn the language as a kids to communicate with our extended family. On top of that, my dad was in army, so every six months to a year or two years, he was moved to a different state in India. And if you've ever been to India, you will know that each state in India has a different language, different script, different culture, different food. It's more like Europe. So we had to learn the language when we were in school. So by the time I finished my high school, I knew 13 languages, but unfortunately, English wasn't one of them. I had passed English as an op optional subject, but there was no reason to speak, there was no reason to learn. And it wasn't until I was in college, after having rejected my faith, Hinduism, Islam, that I ran into a Hindu guy who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he will not say that he's Christian. He always said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What made me interested was because I had read other religious books and I had heard about the Bible, but I had never seen one. So I asked him if he has a copy of the Bible, and he said, sure. And that's how we became friends. But when I went to his room, dorm room, and he put his Bible in my hand, and I opened it, it was thicker than this. And I looked at it, I said, uh-oh. I said, this is in English. He said, well, I only speak English. He said, English and Bengali. And I said, well, I know a little bit of Bengali. I can understand, but I can't speak back, so I'll reply to in, in Hindi. So that's how we became friends. As he tried to share something from the Bible, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I didn't want to listen to anybody. I was just flipping the pages to find something to read, but I just couldn't put anything together until I came to a one tiny statement which was highlighted on two clean pages. So the first thing I ever read in the Bible was John 10.30, where Jesus says, for I and the Father are one. And he had even circled the words in the margin, written there, I, Jesus, Father, God, one, same as. And my first reaction was that who's this person who says that he's same as God? I said, deity is something that we have attributed to people. But nowhere in the scripture you find whether it's Muhammad, the Buddha, or Krishna, or Guru Nanak, anyone ever said that I'm God. So I said, who is this person saying that he's God? 
He said, well, that's Jesus Christ I've been talking about. He kept saying, kept talking. Again, didn't make any much sense what he was saying. Again, I came to a second set of verses as I was flipping the pages. Again, something was highlighted, underlined. And this time, I was able to put together a few words and read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for us all. I wouldn't have known what that word mediator means, except that he had circled the word, and in the margin he had written guru. Now that caught my attention because the whole Sikh philosophy is built on, and theology is built on this concept, that God is holy and righteous. We are sinful. There's no way we can have relationship. Until a guru, a mediator, bridges that gap, bring God's enlightenment to us, and also represents our case before God. And then the religious book closes by saying that after having this knowledge, with the purity of your heart, you go and search for your guru, search for your mediator, and you will find him. And that's what I was doing. But what my mom taught me, because she was the teacher of Sikhism, that no, 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 the 10 human gurus that we had, they are our mediators, so make your full circle back. I said, but no, no, but they are the one who are saying that I'm supposed to go and look for my mediator. So when I read those two verses, I asked Arup, I said, what does it mean that Jesus is the mediator, but I have a problem, why does it say that he's the only mediator? Because right from childhood, we were taught in India, when you say a secular country, that means all religions are the same. Very, very tolerant and very, very nice sounding statement. There's one God, but there are many ways to him. Well, what about other ways? What about my religion? What about other religion? Why does it say that Jesus is the only one? He read few other passages talking about Jesus is the only one. That put me off. I said, no, 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 you guys are trying to make it exclusive. He said, well, that's not the way to learn the scripture. Let's study it systematically. And I said, but I don't want to listen to anybody. I want to read on my own, but I can't read. As I was about to leave, he said, Sukhant, actually, I'm an English teacher. And I have come here to do my master's in this college. If you want, I can teach you English, and we can also study the Bible together. Well, I paused. I said, if I don't get anything else out of this, at least I'll get English. Because I want to learn. There's no other way to do it. Well, next day we started, and he was a smart guy. He picked up the Gospel of John as a textbook. And he brought all the dictionaries from English to Hindi, Hindi to Punjabi, Punjabi to Urdu, everything. And he said, let's study. So that journey began. And when I came to end of chapter 20, this is what John wrote there. He says, if I wanted, I could have written a lot more about Jesus because he performed many other miracles among his disciples. But what I have written, I believe, John is saying, that is sufficient for anyone to read, understand, and conclude that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, and by believing in him, you can have eternal life. I said, well, I'm not convinced, John. Maybe I missed something. So I went back and read John again. Get back and read again. Read other portions of the New Testament. In eight months, I landed up reading the New Testament nine times in the Gospel of John, 22 times, while learning English. And it was a matter of coming to the conclusion that if I wanted any God, I wanted God of the Bible because he made more sense than anybody else. 
But because of my religion, because of my faith, my background, I came from a very wealthy home, came from an upper caste Sikh family, and I couldn't even afford to tell anybody that I was getting attracted towards the Bible. And the reason for that is, because when I grew up, I was told that religion, when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is for those people who are poor and untouchable, those who can't afford to be Sikhs or Muslims or Hindus. And the reason for that was because the early missionaries, when they went to India, that was the mandate, to do charity, to do medical healing, to do liberation. That's how missions were born with William Carey out of Europe. It is a sad thing that till today, when we think of missions, those are the categories that we think of. So there was no reason for the gospel missionaries to move up to north, especially to Punjab and to Haryana, to Himachal, because they were wealthy regions. They didn't need any charity. But people in those areas concluded, oh, Jesus means you need some charity, you need some healing. Somehow the gospel of the forgiveness of sins and hope for eternal life got buried and never got preached. I was able to pick that up from the Bible and it was on uh, one afternoon, July 25th, 1981, sitting reading the Gospel of John, which most of it was memorized, but this one verse just jumped out, which I've read many times before. It was John 16, 24, where Jesus says, so far you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. For the first time in my life, I realized that I've been praying in the names of these gods and gurus who have never asked me to pray in their name. And here is Jesus saying that whenever you pray to God, you pray in my name. I said, why am I not asking? There is no other name. So that was the day on 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, Lord, the first thing I want to ask in the name of Jesus is this whole salvation package. I want forgiveness of sins. I want eternal life. I want to have the Holy Spirit. I want to have the assurance that I belong to. I want to know that I'm going to be in heaven. My first prayer was about 45 minutes long. But as Steve mentioned, my family didn't take it too nicely to that. The reason because I was a Sikh. I wore a turban. I had long hair. Until someone challenged me, they said, if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, prove to us by taking baptism. We went to 16 different churches and no one will baptize me. Because they said, we know your family, we know your background, they'll come and kill us and they'll burn our churches. Until a retired pastor was willing to do that. The next hurdle was no one will cut my hair. They said, you're a minor, you're 19 year old. If I cut your hair, somebody will cut my head. It took another two months to find a barber who cut my hair. So eventually on my 20th birthday, I was baptized after removing my turban, cutting my hair, making this statement to the world and I thought my family is gonna be so proud that I'm claiming that I found my savior, I'm gonna be a better son and a better person. Except not only my dad, but the whole town said that he's ashamed to the community, he ought to be killed. And my father could have killed me and gotten away because that would have been classified as an honor killing. But I was the oldest son, he did the next best thing. He legally disowned me and asked me to leave town. It took eight years to get back to connect it to them. So I often say that my testimony is about the sufficiency of Lord's grace and the power of his word. Because when I was kicked out of my home, I landed up in the streets of Delhi and spent my first five nights sleeping in the parks and under the bridges and um, hungry for three days, dirty with the dirty clothes and had no way to go. And I remember my fifth night, I was lying on this bench. At that time, it was not too far from where Vinita's parents used to live. 
not knowing a soul, coming from a town of 20,000 to 6 million people at that time. Now, <laughs> Delhi is 27 million people. I was lying on this bench, couldn't sleep, tired, exhausted. And by the time that initial joy of salvation was also wearing out, I said, Lord, what's going to happen to me? What am I going to do? Was it my stubbornness? Could I have worked with my dad? Could I have just saved some money? Because he didn't allow me to even pick up a second set of clothes. I could have waited for a while as people were counseling that baptism was not all that crucial. I should have finished my graduation. All kinds of ifs come to mind. That night, as clearly as someone can stand before me, but the Lord asked me these things in my heart. That's the quant right now, <clears throat> when you have no food in your stomach and no proper clothes in your body and no place to stay, can you honestly say that all that matters, that your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name? Can you honestly say that you believe that I will make my grace sufficient for you for all occasions? I had to search my heart that night. All the scripture portions that I had memorized began to flash before my eyes. What does it mean to call God my heavenly father? If he can take care of the sparrows, will he not take care of me? Not a single hair from my head falls without his notice. And I've been keeping God quite busy. <laughs> and especially that morning I had read the book of Romans. And two verses jumped out from Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> After he says that those who love God, all things work together for good for them. You come down to verse 30 and Paul says, and what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only begotten son, will he not with him graciously, or the translation says, freely give us all other things? I felt as if the Lord, instead of encouraging me, was rebuking me that night. Saying, Sikhwant, your greatest need was protection from hell that's already been taken care of. The best I could ever give to you was my son as your savior, Jesus Christ. Will I withhold anything else from you? If you have him, you have everything. Once again, I got up so refreshed with the scripture. I said, Lord, I rejoice that I have salvation in Jesus' name. Anything else you bring will be a bonus. And you even have the right to take away. But I rejoice that I have salvation in Jesus' name. That was the journey that started that night. Lord has uh, been faithful, gracious, not a day's regret. Eight years later, when I got uh, married, connected with the family, had the opportunity to lead my brothers, my sisters. Fifteen years later, my mom to the Lord. My dad also, before his uh, death, um, sudden death, uh, I believe that he came to the Lord. And when I came to Dallas Seminary, the first thing I did was that I wanted to see a better translation of the Gospel of John into Hindi because the, the translation that we were using was done by William Carey in 1818. So when I finished my one of the majors was in Greek, I said I want to translate from Greek directly from Hindi because it has never been done. I'm holding in my hand that Gospel of John, which not only I translated from Greek, but also made into a study edition. The only thing is that I got carried away and I have 3,000 pages of notes on this gospel. <laughs> and International Bible Society said, well, you could write so many commentaries, but since it's a study Bible, we'll only be able to use about 8% of your notes. I said, okay, I had to edit it down. Well, after 16 years, 
and the team of 16 different people, 11 different people, we had the full New Testament out. I brought a copy and I put it out there for you to have a look. And also I brought a few copies of this. If you know somebody at workplace, uh, somebody from India who uh, knows Hindi, this is a good icebreaker. Just mention them a name and say that here's a Sikh fellow who translated this. What do you have to say? And start off a conversation. The full Bible is done. We are waiting for the funding to print that. And Lord willing, next year, year from there, we'll have the whole Bible. Because my commitment has been that this book is a, when, when we open the book, is as if God is standing before us and speaking. That's what the living word means. And uh, so I made a lifelong commitment to teach and preach this book, both to the believers so that they'll engage in them, and also to the non-Christians. In fact, in India, I'll never ever lead a person to the Lord if someone comes to me and says, I'm ready to become, my, become a Christian. My first question is, have you ever read any portion of the Bible? If they say, no. He said, no, no, but we had some healing. I said, no, no, no. Have you ever read the Bible? If not, here's the Gospel of John that you have to start with. Having said that, let's look into our passage for this morning. Now, I don't know how many were not here last Sunday, and a few have chased those away. And anyone who was not here last Sunday, okay? So what you need to do is meet up with the person next to you this week and uh, ask them to help you catch up uh, what we talked about, the first portion of this passage. Matthew chapter... 13, sorry, chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. This passage is very, very remarkable and becomes even better as we go to the second half. The first portion that we looked at that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, such a unique analogy had never ever been made before. So we looked at last Sunday that when we talked about you're the salt, he says that you look at the properties of the salt and that's how you're supposed to function. Flavor the world. Heal the world, preserve the world, uh, then make others thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just need to be, have a little pinch to make that punch that needed to be there. But then he also warned about the danger. If a salt is not functioning as a salt, what good it is? You throw it out to be trampled by, by, by men. The second half, which he says, even more remarkable, because in verse 14, if you have your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 5, he says <clears throat> that you are you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the reasons I was so fascinated by the Gospel of John, because the purpose of John's writing was to give us the deity of Christ. So at our seminary, we basically make our students memorize, literally memorize two books of the Bible, the Gospel of John and the Book of Romans. And so you have to start with that. And the third book that you add to that is Genesis, and then you start adding the other things. The reason because John was chosen to conclude the New Testament. Okay? He wrote the last book, the book of Revelation. So he brings a closure to what had been started by Moses in the beginning. So how does he start the Gospel of John? 
Anyone remembers? In the beginning. How does Genesis 1-1 starts? In the beginning. So he picks it up right from the beginning, literally from the beginning, and he says, let me give you a conclusion. So he gives us the Gospel of John, the three letters he wrote, and the book of Revelation. Now, sometimes the order of the book gets into the way. And when I first got it, I thought that's how the books were written, that all the four Gospels came first and then the letters came. Oftentimes, I heard people getting upset with James that he's messing up Paul's theology. Paul said the salvation was, was by faith, and James comes along and he wants to, start the, wants to add the works into that. Well, if you do a little bit of homework, a little bit of chronology of when these books were written, the first New Testament book to be written was the book of James. So if anybody is correcting anyone, is Paul going after James, not John, James going after Paul. So the first book to be written was the book of James. And when you look at it from that point of view, you say, wow, what a perception he had that what the church needed to get it started. Then came all the epistles, and the end thing that was written were the Gospels. And the last of the Gospel was written was Gospel of John. And then came book of Revelation. So what John is doing is concluding what was started in Genesis 1.1. I designed a Bible knowledge exam for not only our seminary, but also for Asia Theological Association, the 280 different schools. And so they use this Bible exam that I have basically to test the knowledge of individuals, both in their knowledge of the scripture, knowledge of basic theology, and some other practical things. And I have a question bank about 1,000. It'd be interesting to give that to a church goer sometime and see what score that you make on that one. One of the questions that I have, which almost 80% of the people never get it right, and the question is this. What are the first recorded spoken words of the Bible? The first spoken words recorded in the Bible. I don't want to put you on the spot. Often people think that it's in the beginning. No, no, no. It's the third verse of Genesis chapter 1. The first spoken words recorded are, and God said, let there be light. Let me explain the significance of that. It has baffled scientists, theologians, philosophers, mythological writers. They say, what light was that? Because it was not until the fourth day when God created the sun and the moons and the stars and there were different light-giving sources. So what light did God create in Genesis 1-3? On what basis did he separate this darkness and this light? If ever you want to take up a course, and in fact, I challenge my younger daughter, Kangsha, who has to do a project in a combination of theology and mythology, I said, write on this concept of light that is in Genesis 1-3 and see what other mythological literatures had to say. It says there, God said, let there be light. And there was a light. It separated the darkness. Now, the issue becomes, what light was that there? Oh, it's not possible. It was some kind of mythological, it was some kind of things that couldn't have been possible. Well, all that you have to do is then turn to John. The book of Revelation, chapter 22. In chapter 22, it talks about heaven and the coming kingdom. 
if you have never read this verse before, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And that answers the question, what light was there in Genesis 1-3? So that you will not be wondering as to how it's possible that without the sun and the moons and other creation, we had light. Revelation chapter 5, sorry, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, says this. And there will be no longer be any night. They will not have any need for light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they'll reign forever and ever. Do you know that in heaven, or in new earth, there is no sun. There is no light, artificial light. The issue of and the topic of light is so large to study. When we talk about light, we basically talk about the visible light. But there are all kinds of other lights. And their primary sources is one is sun. The other one is when something is burning, like a candle or bulb and all that. So those are the two lights we're able to see. Genesis talks about light. John later on explains that in one of his letters. He says, God is light. In him there is no darkness. It's the same John who quotes Jesus in chapter 8 of John's gospel, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 9, then he says further, and he says, as long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. And what a remarkable thing it is that Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. What a remarkable statement. God has always been the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he says, no, no, no. Now you are the light of the world. In the Old Testament, people had to relate directly with God. When Jesus was on earth, they were relating to him. And one of the things that amazed me, every time I look at it, I said, Lord, what the mess we have created in the world. Why did you leave such a humongous task to the church that we are to share the gospel to the ends of the earth? We are the gospel bearers. We are the light. We are the one who are supposed to take care of all the affairs that you were supposed to take care of. That's where my Trinitarian class with Dr. Burns from DTS kicked in. He says, no, 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 no. It is the Holy Spirit that is supposed to take care of things now while Jesus is up in heaven because he said, I'll send another helper. Just as people got in the way in the Old Testament of what God wanted to accomplish, just as people got in the way what Jesus wanted to accomplish, in the same way you and I get in the way what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish. It has always been God at work among his people. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world as long as I'm on this earth. I'm going to send you a divine helper, and he's going to make you the light of this world. Quickly, as we looked at the various functions of um, salt, one of the primary functions of light is to separate the darkness. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 1. You walk into a dark home, you flip the switch, what's the thing that happens? Darkness is gone, there is light. So when Jesus says that you are the light of the world, 
He says, when it comes to the division of the darkness and the light, you're it. You know, in the race to be politically cracked, we all talk about the middle ground. In scripture, in God's economy, there is no such thing as a middle ground. Because God created a black and white world. There's a darkness, there's a light. Lots of other colors were added later on. I often say the way I read the scripture, to me, is very black and white. It's only when I want to look at white through black, or I want to look at black through white, they become gray areas. We think that we want to be more generous than God. Right and wrong, only two things. In fact, God describes that. He says the righteous who is walking according to the Lord is on the right side, but the one who is foolish and wrong is on the left. There is no middle ground when it comes to darkness and light. There is no middle ground when it comes to sin and righteousness and holiness. What Jesus is saying that you don't need to apologize to the world that I'm sorry I happen to be standing on the side where God is standing. My older daughter who's um, working in the National Institute of Health uh, in Bethesda and the Washington DC area and the politics and everything is just a different world out there. So we often have various discussions. So I wanted to explain to her, I said, uh, when she was asking for my position, political thing and all that, I said, this is what I say to people. I hold to the biblical views. If some political party has to align with that, good. If not, sorry. I said, build your value system on the Bible. Build your ethics on the Bible. Because the psychological world is a world of consensus behavior, which means if 10 people behave one way out of, the, uh, out of 12, that becomes the norm. But then they'll change it again five to seven years from now. They'll change it again 20 years from now. It'll be forever changing. It always amazed me that how slowly and systematically we have softened the rightness and the righteousness of God. You remember the Ten Commandments? What was the punishment for breaking the Ten Commandments? Capital punishment. Punishment by death. Do you know that out of ten, only one is left in which we still give the capital punishment, but that too the people are trying to take away. Thou shalt not kill. Rest everything. Recently, a journal in India was court-martialed on the grounds of adultery. And the rest of the world was laughing. Do you still do that for adultery? Isn't there a consensus behavior of two adults like it? Fine. Maybe she does not love her husband anymore. The whole world was woken up that adultery was still something that on which you could get punished. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, can you imagine someone, a pastor, taking a congregation member to the court and saying to the judge, will you please give him capital punishment because he does not show up at church? That's keeping the Sabbath. Isn't it? Or parents suing their kids and saying that this person ought to be killed because he does not take care of me. He does not honor me as parents. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, we almost laugh. Did God run out of serious things? Because the tenth one says, thou shalt not covet. Oh, that's the motivation to do something in life. Unless I covet a better house and a better car, how else will I work harder in life? We have made a mockery of that. A.W. Tozer, 
says that those who have low view of sin oftentimes have a very low view of God's holiness. And he says God will not tolerate or allow somebody to have a lower view of his holiness. He still hates sin. He has always hated sin. And if there was any way around it, he wouldn't have sacrificed his son on the cross for us. No apologies that I stand on the right side. No apologies that you are the light of the world to expose the darkness, to separate the darkness. The second purpose of light is to reveal the truth. You know, oftentimes <clears throat> when things are fuzzy, you see a little leak in the car and you point trying to wonder whether it's from yours or somebody else's fell. The first thing you do, you grab a flashlight, go to underneath over there to find the truth, where exactly it's coming from. I learned that in a hard way when I was a kid. One time we had uh, people painting our house doing the whitewash, and I wanted to add a little color to my room. So I asked my dad, I said, could I paint my room the way I want to paint? He said, yes. He said, here's the shop, you go and buy the color that you want, and you come paint that, that's, that's fine. Well, I decided to be creative without knowing anything about paint or painting. So I went to this um, shopkeeper, I said, I want my color in my room to be unique. He said, well, here are the basic 12 colors we pick. Select one. I said, no, no, I don't want the regular traditional color. I want to make my own color. He said, yeah, I can do that. You tell me what colors you want to mix, I'll do that. As naive I was, he took a big bucket. I said, okay, put a little bit of this. Put a little bit of that. Now, one interesting thing is that I didn't discover till much later that I'm partially colorblind. <laughs> and... Uh, so when I go to shop for shirts, I always ask for lemon blue and, uh, or pine blue, and they don't have that. So I asked him to mix this. Then I said, can you put a little bit of this? Can you put a little bit of that? He kept doing it, kept doing He kept asking, how much do you need? I said, oh, that should be good enough to paint four walls, so just put another color. I don't know what color it became. I said, yeah, I like it. I brought it home. Well, I had done no measurement, no calculations, nothing. <clears throat> By the time I finished painting three walls, I ran out of paint. I went back to the shopkeeper. I said, can you give me the same color that you gave me before? <laughs> he said, you gave me the measurement how much to mix. Tell me again, and I'll mix it again. I said, oh boy, let's start again. So I tried to remember. We put this, we put that, we put this, we put that. It looked right. I brought it home. I painted the fourth wall. It kind of looked OK. But as things started drying up, my fourth wall was much darker, entirely different color. And how do I know? Because my sister walked in and she says, what nonsense is that? It starts with one color and ends with a different color. <laughs> I said, oh no, my dad is gonna kill me. So I came up with a very bright idea. As the evening fell, I realized that there was one big tube light on that side where the wall was darker. And if I don't turn that on and have the other lights on, it kind of looks the same. So I said, I'll try to find a fix until if I can go by for a couple of nights. So I purposely moved the light in such a way that when you flip the switch, the light will not come on. Well, evening came, my dad comes home, comes to my room to look at my room. This is kind of looks nice, but why is it so dark? Why is that light not working? I said, I don't know. He said, we'll change the tube. Well, let me see. He flipped, light came on, and I got caught. <laughs> it revealed the truth. It really showed where things stand. 
No apologies for that when you have to be the one who had to call and say what you're doing is wrong. A recent survey was done, and probably the Baptist Church will not talk about that. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that. They asked high schoolers and college goers, these kids, that if one day one of your closest friends came to you and said, oh, by the way, I'm gay or lesbian, will it have any effect on your friendship? 83% of them said, no, I'll still be friends with the person. To the same group, they asked this question again. Will you ever tell that friend that according to the Bible, what they're doing is sinful behavior? 97% out of this 83% said, no, it's none of my business. And these are Christians, church-going believers. A pastor friend of mine in north of San Francisco was doing a series on sin, salvation, and sanctification, the whole process of what's happening. Two Sundays in a row, he gets a legal notice from one of the groups representing the lesbian and, and the uh, gay community. He says, Pastor, I'm a member of your church and also a, law- a lawyer. Here's my advice to you. To avoid getting into any trouble, from the pulpit you can mention that we are all are sinners, but don't go too far to specifically talk about what sin is. Just generally mention that we are sinners, we are in need of salvation. That was the advice of a church member, a believer, a deacon, and a lawyer. Well, most people think that I'm making up the stories when I say Jesus is the only way. No. Jesus said I'm the only way. All I need to do is quote the Bible. If you want to take an issue, take the issue with the Bible, not with me. So drive away the darkness, reveal the truth, and also it is to guide the path, to show the way. We all know that you try to take your car out of the driveway at nighttime and you flip your headlights and if they don't come on, you're in trouble, isn't it? You've got to have the light to go make your way. It's the basic function. Now, they tell us that the human eye can see as far as only about five miles because that's where the curve of the earth starts. You can't see things before, beyond that. But if you are elevated and there's a clear day and it's a flat thing, the human eye can see as far as 30 miles, even a flickering of a little bit of the candlelight. And it goes more and more. What that means is that you are the one, Jesus said, to light the path, to point people to the right direction, to the source of ultimate light. When he says you are the light of the world, you are the one showing the path and telling people where to find the truth and God himself. And also, what goes for salt goes also for light. A small pinch for a punch. You don't need much light. You don't need much light. And a large ocean front, oftentimes you see a lighthouse. Nobody manning it, huge high up. There's a huge bulb which goes around a circle and it just does this every once in a while. Ships far away into the ocean are guided by just that one little light that there's a danger 
Don't go there. That's all is needed. If that's all the chance that God ever gives us to be as a lighthouse, then maybe one stranded ship they'll pass by, but will they be able to get enough light to be warned from us? On the other hand, some of us, God allows us to be like the guiding light of a runway. Hundreds and thousands of airplanes land every day, but they need the light to do that. When Jesus said that you are the light of the world, he's saying, what I'm giving it to you is what God is called, what I was called, what the Holy Spirit is called. Now you are called. You are the light of the world. But light a lamp and put it on top of the hill so that everybody can see it. Recently, somebody asked me to look at this big report that came from India. And the report was that there are 300 house churches planted in the outskirts of Delhi within a span of just a year and a half. And I said, I pastored a church in Delhi for eight years and what effort it took us to plant another one. And I said, 300 house churches literally in a, in a year or so came up. So I asked them, I said, we are having a work over there. Can you please ask us to send us a little directory of where these churches are so we can also direct our people to those churches? Came the reply that, no, 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 no. We don't want to publish because then the government will find out that there's a church and they'll come and shut it down. Immediately this verse came to mind. Isn't that the purpose of the church? So that neighbors can know that there's a church, there's a fellowship of believers. You don't start a church and you hide it and you bury it that nobody should ever find out about it. The six people are meeting over there. When I looked at the photographs and other things and all that, I said, who has a house, in this, especially in the community where there are 16 people live in one room, but you have saying that their average attendance is 65 people in a house churches? I don't know whom you're trying to impress with numbers, so why are we playing these games? But you light a lamp and you put it at the highest place in the room, in the house, so that it lights up everything. That's why we, somebody put the lights on the ceiling rather than under the chairs so that you get the maximum light as possible. As a believer, when I'm the light, I want to be the light bulb that shines in the room and gives light to everyone. Some of us work very hard to hide the fact that we are Christians, to hide the fact, oh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Or to hide the fact that I go to actually an evangelical church. What will people think about me? Well, the only thing people are going to think about you, that's a bright shining bulb. So bright that makes me look at things which are not right around me. Separates the darkness. Forces me to really come up with the issue, is the Bible really true? Or are these Christians making up stories? Let your light shine. But the second half of the verse says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let me spend a few minutes on this good work part. You know, oftentimes we shy away talking about good works. And the reason for that is because we think somebody must be bragging about it. We often give testimonies of lessed, less blessedness. Because when Paul quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
So we often give testimonies that how I was in a need and somebody helped me and we all clap. This is wonderful. But if someone were to get up and say that, well, this person was in need, I was praying and I was able to help them and I'm thankful that the Lord allowed me to do that. We say, sit down, you're boasting about life. No, actually, that is the testimony of more blessedness. A friend had taught me, he says, one of the best prayers that you can ever pray is this. You pray for a need, and then you tag along at the end and says, Lord, may I be an answer to my own prayer? Don't say it unless you mean it. It's very easy to pray for things. God, please take care of them. But if you add to that, Lord, could I be an answer to my own prayer? What a blessed thing it is to become more blessed than just receiving it. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Quickly, again, getting back to Genesis. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says that to the couple, Adam and Eve, God says, be fruitful and multiply. And we conclude that means go and have lots of children. But no. There are two different Hebrew words used for fruitful and for multiply. The word fruitful had to do with being productive, being worthwhile, what you're going to do with your life, and multiply was implied to have children. That concept of fruitfulness is all through the scriptures weaved, and we begin to see that what God meant by the fruitfulness was produce those good works that he wanted us to do. So purpose of our creation was to bear fruit to glorify God. And guess what is the purpose of a salvation? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, most of us have memorized that you're saved by grace, by faith, not by works, so nobody should boast. But then verse 10 says, and you're saved for this purpose, so that the good works that God prepared for you beforehand, now you can do them. God says that I only have certain good things I want to get see accomplished through you, but I need to make you good first. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, you make a tree good, its fruit will be good. See, the Hinduism had it all wrong. When we were growing up, we were taught that salvation is by good works. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. Good works are as a result of salvation. You have to make the tree good first. You don't become a good tree by producing good fruit first. It's like saying that a bitter neem tree that we have in India one day decides to say, oh, from next month, I'm going to start bearing some good, juicy, sweet mangoes in hope that one day I become a mango tree. Can it ever be? No. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, you first need to be made into a good tree before you can bear good fruit. But not only the salvation purposes, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the purpose of the scripture is what? So that we can be taught, we can be rebuked, we can be corrected, and we can be trained in righteousness so that we are good and equipped for what? Every good work. He says the process of the sanctification is again for the same purpose. You are saved for good works. You are created for good works. And now you have to go through the sanctification process so that you can learn how to do good works because that's what brings God glory. You and I cannot say 
that I have had a very fruitful life, or this was a very good, fruitful year. Because the fruit is never for the consumption of the tree. Fruit is something that others always enjoy, others that benefit from it. They turn around and say, what a good tree. So if no one has enjoyed your fruit in your good works, your Father in heaven is not glorified. They have not blessed you because that didn't happen. You know, it always amazes me that the young generation actually has no concept of these, some of these terms, the fruit and the tree and other things. As a reminder about two incidents, I was in Singapore a few years ago, and this family I visited, they said, oh, today we are going to a petting zoo. Would you like to come? I said, I think I'm too old for that. And you guys go ahead. But I said, by the way, why, why are you going there? He said, well, our two young kids in school, they were given an assignment to draw their favorite fruit tree. So my son drew a tree on which eggs grow. He has no clue where eggs come from. <laughs> and my daughter drew the redwoods of California, way tall, big, which are growing grapes. <laughs> so he says, today we are going to show them where the eggs come from. Someone preached their heart out at a high school about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And a beautiful passage. They asked the kids to interact. So what does that mean to you? I don't know. I don't know what a shepherd is. I've never sheep seen a shepherd before. I don't even know what a sheep is. I've never seen one. Looks like a lost concept. Every time I turned around and asked my younger daughter, I said, let me give you this, some new fruit and also let me tell you where it comes from. She said, Papa, it's okay. I'm good. That's the answer. I'm good. These biblical basic concept that Jesus from the everyday life. He said, the measure of your goodness is not that how good you look as a tree, but what kind of a fruit you bear for the enjoyment of others. You are the light of the world. And the primary purpose of the light is to glorify God who is in heaven. And the way we do that is allow our light to shine among men and women in such a way that as they are blessed by our good works, our Father in heaven is glorified. But the sad part is that people have become so selfish, not only not to give help, but even to take help. My wife gets upset with me every now and then, but every time I go to a shopping center, I pick up the cart, I walk with that, but then I look for someone. If I see an elderly person, or if I see a mother with two children and her grocery things and trying to put the stuff back, I just cannot help, but I go there to volunteer. May I, may I help you to load it? Strangely, most of the time people say no, and once in a while they say yes. So my wife keeps saying that, why don't you mind your own business? They don't want your help. I said, no, but this is my character. I want to keep my character true so that I will not be accused that I didn't offer my help. So one day I saw this uh, lady, elderly lady. She had a big cart. She had bought some water and everything. It was a high bed. She's trying to put stuff there. I went there very reluctantly, and I said, may I help you lift this thing to that thing? And she says, no, I'm fine. 
I said, I'm sorry for asking you. That's what my wife keeps telling me. I should mind my own business and not burn into others' business. She turned around and she says, I'm so sorry. She says, the problem is not with you. The problem is with me. She said, nobody ever offered me help. I've become used to that I'm supposed to do things on my own. So where is your wife? I want to have a talk with her that you are right and I'm wrong. I said, I wish she was here. <laughs> but she wasn't. She was so kind and gracious, and she says, that's what the world has made me. A selfish person not to receive help, and then she goes on to make another statement. And she said, now I've become so selfish, I don't even help anybody else. That's a light that's hidden way under. The batteries have not been recharged. It has not been replaced. It's as good as darkness. And God says, what do users have for you, from you? But let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works for which you were created, for which you are saved, for which you are getting sanctified. And then our Father in heaven is glorified. That's where we bear the good fruit for the blessing of others. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these two concepts that you so beautifully explained to us. And what an amazing thing that you will trust us to lay the responsibilities that just as God is light in this world, just as you were the light of the world, today you give that title to us and says we are the light of the world. Lord, help us that we do not quench this light, hide it, and as a result, people around us are fumbling through the darkness and nobody ever showed them the way. Lord, not to shy away from standing up for what is truth, for what is on your side, what is holy. Lord, someone way out there may need a little bit of light to point them to the right direction, to show them the path. Allow us to be that little light. Because only when we allow our light to shine, we produce those good works for which you created us, for which you saved us, and now for which you are sanctifying us. So when the opportunity comes, we are ready for every good work. And when people are blessed by our fruit, they'll give you all praise because they know that humanly it is not possible for us to be helpful, for us to be gracious, to us to be loving, to be forgiving and blessing others. Help us, Lord, with our selfishness. We started by not accepting help, and now as a result, we don't give help. We are quenching the light that you want us to be. Our prayer is that this church and every member will be known as a shining light in this community and this city so that many are pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ and to God himself. And we ask, Father, that you do that for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, and also for the good of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.